welcome to the Chance by Chance podcast. This is Chance Gilliam. I had a lovely time talking to the guest on our show today. Her name is Liz Warner, and she's currently approaching the grand conclusion of an epic adventure spanning several years and several continents, and it's all been under the umbrella of a project she began called Run to Reach a personal and international fundraising effort to support global women communities by completing 30 marathons before her 30th birthday in June of 2020. Which means the end is right around the corner if you are listening to this episode at the time of its release or soon thereafter, which means now would be an excellent time to visit runtoreach.com to learn more about the project and if you are in a position to do so, to contribute to the cause. There's a high level of transparency on the site in terms of which organizations Liz has partnered with. Uh, There are also virtual gifts that you can send to people around the world um, so you know where your money is going and that it is making an immediate positive impact in someone's life, someone in need. Uh, And we talk about effective altruism in this episode, among many other things, as you will hear. Uh, It's cool to see it implemented. It's also really cool to see Liz combining an existing passion, or several of them, running, traveling, adventure, uh, combining passions with the ability to help other people. I think that's the happiest balance that you could ever aspire to strike, is, uh, is doing something that you love and helping other people while you do it. Um, if you want to follow Liz, uh, you could do so on Instagram at Run to Reach. Even though this project is uh, soon to be concluded, I'm sure she's going to get up to something uh, equally, if not more so, crazy and awesome uh, after June of this year. Um, again, runtoreach.com. Um, there are links to other interviews that I referenced during the conversation in the show notes of this episode. But with that, I will say, please enjoy my conversation with Liz Warner. Liz, I want to ask you about Paris. And I, I, should, I should also preface saying, for those listening, um, I listened to, to a whole bunch of interviews that you have done. And uh, mm-hmm. just in an, in an attempt to... Uh, pay credit where credit is due. I'm going to link to them in the show notes so I don't oh, like attribute anything that I heard during the conversation. Um, but uh, so you you moved to Paris a few years ago to complete a master's. Uh, can you tell yes. me a little, a little bit about that? Of course. So I, growing up, I went to an international school and from a very young age started learning French. But... Um, So after college, actually, I moved to Japan. Sorry, this is the long version of the story. I lived in Japan for about five years, um, working in a number of different jobs. And uh, around, yeah, the fifth year, I was like, you know, I'm ready to move someplace new. But I wasn't really necessarily ready to move back to the U.S. I spoke a bit of French. Um, I found this great master's program I was really interested in. So I just decided to go for it. And and move here. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very easy lifestyle to ease into. So um, I've been really happy here ever since. Yeah, I uh, I was blessed to to spend about a month and a half in France last summer, um, yeah. which doesn't feel long ago. But like looking at the calendar, seeing that that was almost a year ago is, is sort of crazy. Like it's funny yes. how time can be both both short and long, um, yes. just like based on how you look at it. Um, of but one of one of my uh, my favorite parts of of being in Paris was the the walkability of the city. Yes. Um, I was going to this uh, to this writing workshop, and every morning I was walking like five or six miles to get there, and yes. taking a different route every day and just checking things out. And yeah. um, one thing that I've heard you speak about is uh, running as a form of meditation, and yes. I think walking is definitely the same for me. Um, yes. but I know you said like, uh, it balances your emotions and, and provides mm-hmm. some clarity of thought. Maybe you could yes. talk about, uh, just like being outside in the open air and, and, and moving your body and why yeah. everyone should get some of that in their life. Of course. I mean, for me, and I, I think especially sort of tying in the whole travel aspect too, it's, 
it's just the greatest feeling in the world to, you know, have the time and get completely lost in the streets. And um, yeah, I mean, I think for me running, it's funny, I never really consider running to be kind of like a fun activity. It's Mm -hmm. more sort of, you know, before I go out on any run, I'm always sort of aiming to achieve that sort of mental flow where you just get into this sort of trance you're not even really thinking about anything anymore and to me that feels that's the closest I've gotten to meditating I've actually tried sort of the more um traditional form of meditation and I've actually found it to be really difficult but for running it's really it's much easier for me to sort of get into that mental flow and I mean I think you can do the same you know just going for a really long walk and it's mostly just about being really present and observing what's around you and not necessarily like thinking about a million things at once that's sort of um you know just the chaotic world we live in so so yeah so running you know thankfully has really become sort of my form of therapy and meditation over the years. Yeah. Uh, so you, you touched on another thing I was going to bring up, which is um, just being in the present moment. And I've heard you say that one of your, your biggest takeaways so far from this, from this project and the adventure that you've embarked on has uh, been learning to prepare for and also just accept the unknown. Yes. Uh, how, how has that lesson manifested in your life um like how have you come to understand that uh just being okay with the element of the unknown and and also planning for that insofar as you're able to plan for something you don't know that's gonna happen you know yeah 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 absolutely you know I think when I started this project I had you know I set a lot of expectations for myself in terms of you know, even just the amount of money I wanted to raise with all the fundraising and the exposure and certain travel experiences I really wanted to um, to sort of live. And as I sort of, you know, was going through the year and going to all these different amazing places, I just realized for me, you know, traveling was so much you just it's it's all about embracing the unknown unknown and sort of shedding any normal routines that you normally adhere to and and I think all of that has sort of allowed me to gain a true a sense of my truest self and um, you know before I started this project too I was a huge planner like I love to control everything in my life and so much of what has happened in the past year is just like it's it's all of the things I could never have predicted and you know I think for now as well I even going through this crazy crisis period with COVID, I think we always just need to somehow prepare for the worst and um, always have faith in the best, of course. But but yeah, I think that's been definitely the biggest lesson I've learned from the past year. Hmm. And as long as you mentioned COVID, uh, I mean, yes. we're bound to talk about it sooner or later. Um, yes. But I, I sort of laughed earlier. I was listening to uh, one podcast that you did in February of this year, yes. and you said something like, I've never done a virtual marathon before, but it's a cool concept. And that statement yes. has now become uh, prophetic uh, yes. because for, I think the last two marathons, you are running them virtually. Yes. So, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, turning or making strong lemonade out of the lemon situation. <laughs> you know, when I got back, the last marathon I ran, actually, I was in Yemen And I almost also got stuck there. It was like right when all the travel bans were being enforced. It was a crazy situation. I got back from that trip um, back in Paris. And yeah, I realized that essentially everything that I had planned for in the last two races, I was supposed to do my last marathon on Everest. A lot of big plans uh, for these last two races. But, you know, I don't really have a choice besides making, um, I'm going to make my 29th marathon virtual, but it's actually turning into such a blessing because at the end of the day, you know, the main purpose of my project was to try to raise as much money and funds for all the different organizations I've been lucky enough to partner with. And uh, so with this virtual race, I set off this big fundraising campaign to try to get 2,600 people to donate $26 ahead of my final 26 mile marathon. So with this virtual race, you know, so far I have a, a few hundred people signed up from 
over a hundred countries and it's just been a great way to connect with so many different people from all different cultures who I, you know, have sort of been following my project also from the beginning. And um, it's also just been a great way to raise money for all of these amazing organizations as well. Um, the WHO COVID fund um, that I'm also working with and, and fundraising for. So, so yeah, so it's been, you know, it's been a good outcome all around, I think, since yeah. everything started, yeah. And as I understand it, um, as this, this was all uh, sort of born in your mind, you had yes. uh, come across the effective altruism, uh, yes. I don't know if I could say movement, but the, yes. the idea at least. Um, yes. can, can you just give like a brief, uh, description of that as you as you take it for people that maybe aren't familiar with effective altruism of course so effective altruism it is absolutely a movement you know it's almost like a belief system and how because you know I think also when I started this project and I was sort of faced with having to do my own research and find really cool nonprofits to work with throughout this whole mission, I was completely overwhelmed as to where I should start because, you know, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of nonprofits to choose from. So effective altruism is essentially a movement that sort of urges donors to give towards organizations and really maximize their donation, the you know, as much as they can, almost getting your, like the biggest bang for your buck with your donation. Mm -hmm. And um, they, so this, the movement actually supports a number of different organizations that, you know, you can actually go on their website and, you know, put in, for example, if you're going to donate to that organization $50, you know, it actually calculates how many lives you would save through that donation. So it's using a lot of science and logic to, again, try to figure out how can we maximize the donation amount um, for anyone nonprofit. So um, I found, you know, I listened to a TED talk by one of the, the leaders of this movement, Peter Singer, and um, it really helped guide me at the very beginning of, you know, when I started Run to Reach and when I was really researching different organizations to work with. Um, I still very much believe in the movement. And I think, you know, there are some controversial statements that um, that have come out of effective altruism as well. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, just like anything, you need to sort of cherry pick what you um, believe in. And uh, I definitely support the overall message of effective altruism. But as I was going in through my project and um, I really found that I was starting to, you know, um, become attracted to working to, with organizations that were more community-based and that were more investing in the capabilities and the character of the populations living in all these countries. So, and that kind of like wouldn't necessarily fall in, under the umbrella of effective altruism. So again, I think, you know, when I look back at the beginning of, of starting Run to Reach and choosing all the different organizations I was going to work with, um, it definitely gave me a lot of guidance and um, I definitely chose to work with certain organizations based on their criteria and principles. So, sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, that's that's exactly what podcasts are for. That's good. Yeah. Um, I, I, I uh, this just occurred to me, but I suppose you're, um, it's especially important to to make sure that uh, these organizations are transparent um, yes. because you're needed to be transparent as well. If you are taking yes. the onus upon yourself to to raise this money, you yes. I mean you want to be sure that that the people that are supporting these organizations by supporting you are like getting what they paid for essentially. Exactly. Yes. Um, and yeah, I think you know that's a huge problem now I think with with the whole charitable giving sector is that it's quite hard to find organizations that are very transparent with what they do and sort of their funding streams and that was a big big criteria for me that I mean it made my life so much easier obviously working with the organizations who were just you know could very clearly lay out their actions because at the end of the day I would have to communicate this again in some way to to my audience and my platform and it just yeah made the whole process a lot easier for me too yeah and uh on your website runtoreach.com i yes. uh it's cool that there are also these virtual gifts 
Where, uh, yes. or G-I-F-T-S, not GIFs, but GIFs. Yes, yes, um, yes. <laughs> where, uh, uh, people can uh, give money specifically for um, like certain uh, objects uh, for people or also... I saw there were like some leadership courses for young women and things like yes. that. Um, yes, yes. Did, were, so were those all uh, things that you found first from like partnering with a particular NGO and yes. then uh, like deciding that this one specific area could be something to, to add on to the site or like yes. how, how, how did that come about? Like how did you pick these NGOs? Of course. You know, again, when I first approach a lot of different organizations, and not to say that I was extremely picky, because I definitely, you know, did my research, my due diligence. And, you know, even from their website, I could tell, you know, whether they had the capacity to even support a campaign like Rent Reach. And um, with the virtual gifts, I just found it really important for me, again, when I was sort of communicating about all these different organizations, I could go to my potential donors and say, you know, $50 would go towards this. And I, you know, I met with the NGOs, they proved, you know, I saw it firsthand the incredible work that they're doing. And again, it was sort of providing, giving a sort of quantifiable donation amount to my potential donors. And I think that makes it a lot easier for people to eventually, yeah, contribute and donate their money just knowing exactly what it would go towards. So when I added that virtual gift page um, on my website, it again, it's just trying to, you know, I'm not asking you to give $50 and oh, it's like, you know, it's sort of going into this black hole. Like I really want wanted my donors to know exactly what it could go towards. And that was really important for me when you know, when I was first approaching the NGOs that they could give me these kind of numbers. And again, that sort of goes back to effective altruism is where they really try to push nonprofits to come up with a number so that it makes it easier for people to know where their money is going towards. Yeah. And to know that you're uh, aiding someone directly, um, yes. you know, to see that it is going to make a meaningful difference for, for one person or for, you know, a small group of people. Um, yes depending on what it is that you choose. Yes. Um, and I, I I suppose I want your insight on uh, just just given your experience with fundraising, why yes. perhaps so many people in uh, in this world are so reluctant to um, share their resources. Uh, I one uh, I, I even from my own life, let's say, yeah. um, I've yeah. got family in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and here, okay. um, there is this uh, this group called the League of the Ridiculous, which okay. is a, re a really cool idea of um, it's like com a community run and people get together at a venue um, four times a year. So it's quarterly. And uh, I think four different people give presentations um, and a number, you know, the and those are like drawn out of a hat. Um, mm -hmm. and if you're lucky enough, you get to present an idea and, um, everyone that's participating is giving, uh, $100 and at the end everyone votes. And then, um, the total sum goes to, uh, whichever, uh, initiative is chosen. Um, and, and Maybe these are cool. all, uh, yeah, like, uh, charitable donations. It's not like the people are just getting money for themselves. Like, yes, right, right, right. Yeah, of pitching, course, like, of I could really course. use this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but for me, uh, I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. But that's, you know, that's not something that I could do. I, I'm not, I, I don't have like a hundred dollars to spend. But then when I really think yes. about it, you, I mean, like even just whipping out the calendar, uh, the calculator quickly, it's like a hundred dollars, yeah. four times a year, which is $400. Yes. Right. 365 a year that's like a dollar and 10 cents a day and yes. it's like if if, it, if I put it that way like I could definitely afford a dollar and 10 cents a day to make a difference right. for somebody but uh yeah, there's that like at first there's there was this reluctance and yes. since then I'm like all right this is something that I want to do like I can I can do that um yeah. but yeah just just given your experience with fundraising why why do you think uh is it it just is it maybe just the way that that it's framed sometimes that people um, don't uh, just don't make fundraising more of a part of their life and their their finance finances. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I feel like there's a whole psychology of fundraising, and I 
Gosh, yes. I think it's been hard. Like, honestly, the hardest part of my project has been the fundraising um, because you almost need to have sort of a aggressive salesman personality, I think, to really try to sell, to get people to give their money, of course. But um, it's funny you say that, too, because so, you know, obviously I'm based here in Paris and I think even seeing the differences in um people donating in the U.S. versus in France or in Europe is so different. And it's actually so much easier to fundraise in in the U.S. Because I feel like, you know, even as you say, it is quite hard to try to get people to donate. I think it is still ingrained in our culture, in the American culture, uh, to, you know, to be altruistic. And yes, to, you know, obviously not make huge donations all the time, but to give as much as you can. You know, there are fundraisers all the time. And and um, I really saw the difference when I tried to fundraise here in Paris and I just, I got nothing, like nothing mm. at all. So, um, but, you know, I think it, it also, when I started this project too, like I was also a little bit um, jaded by the whole charitable giving sector. And, you know, you hear terrible controversies of what certain NGOs have done in the past and even you know these really big international nonprofits and how they misuse funds and how like governments end up you know there's a lot of corruption involved with with aid and I um I was very reluctant you know even before I started this project of giving my own money away because a lot of times you just don't really know where it's going towards mm-hmm. and I think that's a huge hurdle um that and I think you know thinking about how the the charity world needs to proceed going forward I think radical transparency is the way to go because no one really wants to give their money any longer away unless they know exactly where it's going towards um and I think you know it's not always a very easy thing to do to quantify or to to give you know to show exactly because it's a very complicated system obviously you know starting an NGO paying staff etc but I think um that you know at least with my own project I've actually tried to help certain nonprofits, you know and figure out how we could make it easier for them to communicate what exactly they they do and and sort of put it in a specific number so that it would be easier to try to get donations eventually. Mm. Um, switching gears slightly, uh, yeah. but but another side of this is that mm-hmm. not only are you raising money for these organizations, but you have mm-hmm. also needed to finance your own journey. Um, yes. And so I I guess you've like uh, gotten some sponsorships um, yes. or like contacted tourism boards. Um, how, what has that process been like for you? Uh, yeah, financing, financing your own travels and lodging and everything. Another very difficult part of this whole project. Uh, (laughs) basically also when I started Run to Reach, I had two months to plan everything. I came up with the idea during my honeymoon and I was like, I'm going to do this, had two months to plan. And, uh, yeah, I just naively assumed it would be very easy to get a sponsor, like a big one, who could very much, like, sort of be my partner, uh, brand partner throughout this whole process. And, yeah, it's it's really tough. And um, I think especially when you're reaching out to sponsors, it's not even how amazing or how cool your idea or project is. It's really just comes down to timing and you know, fund allocations. And um, I just, what I came to learn very on and early on in the project is just, yeah, like I should have been planning everything a year in advance. And, Mm. And so it was really, it was very, very difficult to scrape by. And I think, you know, a number of people I've met like the past year, they, I feel like they've become inspired and they want to do their own, you know, personal project, maybe not exactly running 30 marathons, but, you know, something similar. And I just, my one piece of advice is like, just, you know, if you really are going for sponsors, um, you know, plan way ahead and, um, and also know that you're going to have to send, you know, probably a thousand emails to get maybe a few responses. And, uh, you know, eventually um, a couple months into Run to Reach, 
I realized, you know, I'd gotten a few like small to medium sized sponsors. And um, I eventually I think what was so costly about my whole adventure was, of course, the flights, because I mm. could sort of scrape by and figure out like cheap guest houses I could stay at if I could contact locals to, to stay with them. But flights were really the expensive part. And so I actually sent out a big email to people I'd met so far in the journey, friends and family, and just asked, you know, would, would you donate some Sky Miles towards my project? And <laughs> I actually received like a ton of Sky Miles. It was a little bit complicated to figure out because they were all in different companies. But, mm. you know, um, I somehow managed to really make do based on just um, all of these donated Sky Miles and and, um, you know, occasionally for one marathon, I would be working with one brand. And so it just, it was really um, a lot of scraping by, to be completely honest. And um, very, another very stressful part of this project. I mean, all worth it in the end, but it's just not easy, especially when you're sort of doing it on the go. And I was traveling while like writing all these emails and so yeah. <laughs> yeah, live and learn. Yes, exactly. Um rewinding from uh that two months of planning you had gotten married like pretty pretty recently before that right yes yes um it was actually when I came up with the idea for run it was literally during my honeymoon I was in um (laughs) Namibia I just gotten married in uh Zanzibar in Tanzania had a some like a quite a small wedding there and then um yeah I mean I was working at um, this design architecture firm and was not super happy. I I knew I had to make a decision as soon as I returned to Paris whether to extend my contract or not. And, uh, you know, I was just feeling really anxious. And I also, for a long time, have sort of been wanting to, to sort of do something really crazy and knew that perhaps this could be the last time in my life that I could really do something like this. So... Yeah, I just decided to go for it. And I don't know how my husband at the time supported me because he also had just um, moved from Japan to essentially live in the same city as me in Paris. And um, here I was just being like, okay, like, thank you for moving, you know, across continents. And I'm just going to leave again for the next year and a half. So there's a there's a couple of things that I want to take out of that. Um, First, just being you mentioned like this. uh, feeling dissatisfied with um your your career trajectory I suppose at the time and I think that's something um many people can identify with um for various reasons but for you personally um can you describe just that that feeling of anxiety at all and the I suppose like the fear and ultimately the courage to decide to to branch out and change the the path a bit yeah. You know, it's hard. I'm, to be honest, by nature, I'm a very impulsive person. Um, I I definitely am not afraid of taking risk. But, you know, I'd sort of been doing the same sort of, I've always been really working in communications and marketing since graduating from, from college. And yeah, I just felt like I felt hungry to to yeah dive into the unknown and I also wanted to do something that somehow this is going to sound a little bit cheesy but impacted the world outside of my own personal bubble Mm. and um you know it felt when I came up with the idea it just felt really natural like I was combining my two passions running and traveling into this big idea that was so much bigger than than both of those things both of those passions and and so, yeah, it just, it made so much sense in my head. And, um, you know, again, I think it was just kind of a serendipitous moment where I was returning to Paris. I was going to have this big meeting with my old company, whether I was going to continue or not there. And and so I just, I just decided to, to go for it. And another crazy thing that happened too. So I said yes to, to this big idea to start Run to Reach. I quit my old job. And then I was actually like the universe continued to test me because mm-hmm. a few weeks later, um, because I was so unhappy at my previous job, I was actually interviewing at other companies and 
I um, I had this amazing interview at this really cool firm and I was, you know, dying to get the job, but they didn't really have the position open yet. And so maybe a few weeks I was into planning. I was like really deep into planning rent to reach. I was choosing all my marathons, all the organizations, planning all the travel logistics. And I got an email from that company I'd interviewed at and they were like, you know, Liz, we know it's been a while since we last you know, spoke and um, the position was actually open. Would you be interested? And again, mm. I was like, God, do I take the safe route? You know, take this secure path where, and to be honest, like, I also had no idea how I was going to plan the finances for Run to Reach. Again, I was just like a very risky, I'm just going to jump into this a little bit blindly. And, um, you know, I just, I think I've always. I always try to live life to the fullest and wake up every day feeling like, you know, this perhaps could be my last. And so I, you know, I told them no and I told them I was going to do this. So I just think no matter what, you know, I think also telling some people at the very beginning about rent to reach they were like what are you like why are you doing this and, and I still even think I have some friends who don't take me that seriously because I maybe don't have the traditional job any longer and what I've been doing sounds a little bit like crazy and um you know out of the box but I think it's doing you know the greatest lesson in life is just continuing to do things that scare you and you know live a, your life a little bit out of your comfort zone and that's when ultimately you will grow into you know you will continue to grow and evolve and um yeah I don't know I mean I just I think everyone should say yes to a crazy idea that they have at some point in their life um I guess that's the biggest takeaway for me yeah and and I think it really goes to show that um you know as as much uh as planning is needed along the way um at first uh some uh, what's that expression like you you just have to jump and like find your wings on the way down like sometimes like in order to plan and to to take it seriously yourself uh you do just have to just start out um because if you're and, and again like speaking from experience like um, well, I guess it's another kind of old adage too. Like if you've got a, a if you have a backup plan, like you're always going to fall back onto it just because like yes. plan A is easier. That kind yes, of thing. Yes, yeah. of course, of course. I mean, how did you yourself sort of jump into your own, you know, living the nomadic life and, and sort of leaving all the semblance of stability behind? Oh, well, um, like most things, it's a, like there's a lot to it and and even um you know because i've i've spoken about this uh, about this a lot not necessarily on the podcast but but to friends and to family and like anyone who asks really so since you're asking i guess i will talk yes. about it on the podcast um and uh and even in like unpacking the chain of events um i've been thinking a lot about memory in the past few months and it's it's yeah. so strange to me that like even though I have these milestones in my mind of like what really led to this, there's probably all sorts of factors that have just like slipped from from my recollection. Um, but as far back as I can go was probably my uh, senior year of high school. And um, at uh, a few things coincided. One is that uh, I had first started listening to podcasts and one of them uh, was uh, called The Tim Ferriss Show. Um, and he he interviewed this uh, this author named Rolf Potts, who wrote mm-hmm. a book called Vagabonding. Um, okay. And it was uh, and the the subtitle I believe is the the art of long term world travel, um, something along those lines. And it yeah. was just like so hugely influential hearing him speak. And I bought the book, and um, and actually as a side note, uh, this this writing program that I did in Paris last summer, yes. uh, he was the director of. So it it wow. came full circle in a really neat way uh, just wow. recently. Um, wow. But along with that, my uh, my aunt and uncle were visiting from the southwestern United States up in Minnesota, where I was at the time, and um, I remember we were taking a hike along the Mississippi, and um, th- there there are two people that I've always looked up to. Uh, have had very uh, wild and adventurous lives of their own. Yeah. And um, I remember my uncle saying something like, the reason why there aren't, you know, very many 
revolutionary thinkers today is because so many people are in debt and just like trying to get by and you can't be thinking about the next big idea if you're if you're thinking about whatever your boss tells you to think about because you yeah. you like oh on this car or this mortgage or whatever it yes, is and like yes. people just get so far behind and you yes. spend your whole life just like trying to catch up to this to this avalanche of uh of debt or even like yeah. once you've caught up you know like the just like enjoying that financial stability let's say yes. like people then don't want to risk it um but for me like I heard that and I was like all right well I'm not gonna go into debt then um yeah and and I guess like immediately from that I was like well I don't think I'm gonna go to college <laughs> um which was I mean a few people uh from from my graduating class also did not go to college and some of those were you know just people like taking the gap year going right. and, and doing something and then and then going to school um but I for a long time was uh just very much from the standpoint of like all right I'm I'm just not gonna go to college and I'll make it work which has actually changed um within the past few months and uh it, and it's funny because now that like this past year, um, a lot of my old cra- uh, classmates have just graduated from college, from an undergrad. Yeah. So, like, yeah. at the point when I would have been graduating, I'm like, I'm actually going to go to school now. Um, wow. But, uh, but along with that, I'm looking at uh, enlisting in the military and getting some um, some financial aid in that respect. Uh, okay. Hopefully that plays out. But I, I suppose cool. that, that was, like, the yeah, the foundation of it all. And then since yes. then which I think is something that you can relate to. I mean, even from like the first trip that I took, which is I spent uh, three or four months in Europe, like a week after graduating high school, I like hopped on a plane and um, I was just so shocked that all these places that seemed so foreign were like, in a way, just like uh, everything that I was used to, mostly because like people are people wherever you go. And, And I think like overall that's been my biggest takeaway just from uh, like injecting some worldliness is like, uh, you know, when, you, when you're hearing about distant places or, or distant people, you know, you, you, you start to think of these things as the other and you're just, yes. you know, like accustomed to whatever you're around every day. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like there are so many similarities and obviously oh, like yeah. plenty of cultural differences too, which makes the whole thing enjoyable. But like yeah, really wherever you go, um, which I, which I, uh, you, you could definitely say a few words about just from, I, and I think having been to so many like vastly different places over the course of these marathons and like the people that you've met there and maybe common values that, that underline everybody. Yeah. I mean, 100%. I couldn't agree more with that statement, but, uh, you know, I think if I can pinpoint one specific experience where it was just really eye-opening in terms of just realizing truly how similar we all are. Um, So for, I think it was Marathon 23 or 22, I traveled to Afghanistan, actually. There is a marathon there in this beautiful region called Bamiyan, which is sort of northwest of Kabul. And um, yeah, I mean, I spent the week with these really fierce and courageous Afghan women runners who are all taking part in the marathon. And I mean, it's it's important to mention that running is not at all acceptable for, for women to do there. And so um, the organization I was actually supporting in Afghanistan is called Free to Run, and they mainly just um, provide safe spaces for women to engage in, in sport. But um, yeah, I mean, I just remember one conversation. And again, it's like traveling to these places where you know, you have all these preconceived notions of of what they might be like because of the headlines you've been reading about them for years, you know, especially these quote unquote dangerous countries. And, um, you know, I was talking to these girls and also you sort of imagine them to be really oppressed and sort of, you know, not very cultured in a way because they've been, you know, living in this very conservative country. And in fact, these girls, you mean, they were asking me if I had just read Michelle Obama's book becoming and Mm. were telling me that they loved game of thrones and you know again it's like it was just like a crazy 
experience to really wrap your wrap my head around you know because also they were telling they were sort of just an open book about telling me certain experience like horrific experience that they had gone through you know one girl there was a huge bombing at her university and you know so again it's just it's coupled with these other very crazy experiences but you know I'm still in touch with a number of them today and it's not like oh again I'm just keeping in touch with someone I met during my travels, it's like, these are actually people that I can very much relate to and who are my friends and, you know, I can have normal conversations with. And yeah, it's just, just, it's making these parallels with people from completely different cultures that I guess makes traveling so, you know, transformative and, and life-changing. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of this is due to the the advent of the internet and, you know, it, just even the fact that you can go online and like quickly book a flight and end up anywhere yes. like within a day. Yes. Um, yes. And, and so this is for me, like part of why, like for me, political dissent has grown so frustrating is yes. seeing that like on an individual level, you know, people like, you know, they're watching Game of Thrones and reading Michelle Obama and like we have all these shared interests and yet yes. when it's framed from from the the point of like big media uh yes, yeah, it's, it's this distancing and uh yes. and and like defining these these other peoples as like uh different from ourselves somehow yes. and uh yeah. and i think more and more people are seeing that that's just simply not true of course yes definitely and i think you know obviously i mean not right now but access to travel has just exploded and you know i do almost i feel like i have a renewed hope for humanity like the more people travel and the more people have access to travel like just the more open they will be and mm. i find that you know and i'm sure you as well like the people that you meet in all these trips, it's like oftentimes the people who are really accepting of differences. And if that's like your different religion or you have different, you know, values, but it's just more about like learning about each other and continuing to be really curious about, I guess, the other um, person that you would think would be very different from you. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. When uh, this is another story that I heard on a podcast, but yeah. we're, um, when you were in Afghanistan, didn't you yes. meet like a young kid that ran the marathon in ballet slippers? Oh God, that was a crazy story. So, um, yeah, so we spent about, you know, a week and a half in this area called Bamiyan. And Bamiyan's actually famous because like thousands of years ago, there's these two huge Buddha statues. Actually, they were like some of the biggest Buddhas in the entire world. And unfortunately, in 2001, they were bombed by the Taliban. And uh, so it's just these, you know, carved into these mountains, just this hollow, um, almost a grave, you could call it, where the Buddhas used to stand. And next to the Buddhas, there are maybe like hundreds of little tiny caves where, again, thousands of years ago, um, monks used to pray and live next to these Buddhas. Now, um, these caves are actually occupied or lived in by um, families who have been internally displaced within Afghanistan. Mm. And so the day before the marathon, um, we were visiting a school in one of these caves. And it was just, again, like pretty surreal to see like a classroom of maybe 35 students in one of these caves. And there's this one teacher there. I mean, she was fantastic and spoke brilliant English. And um, I was sitting next to to a girl and she had these like really piercing green eyes almost like that famous photo in the National Geographic it's like one of the most famous photos of the Afghan girl she had these like same eyes and I just remember being completely mes mesmerized by her presence and the very next day it was you know 10 a.m we were about to start the marathon of Afghanistan and um, everyone's sort of crowding around the starting line I look down and I see this girl like she must have she could not have been more than you know 11 years old and she just again had these like piercing green eyes and she was ready to go she was wearing ballet flats and the crazy thing about this marathon is like it wasn't you know it was 26 miles or nothing like it wasn't like you could do a, a 10k or something like that it was really like the whole marathon and it was going to be really tough like it's never been I think the quickest time is someone finishing it in eight hours just because it's really hilly and um so yeah so we you know the there's 
someone shot a gun. We all started um, running like uh, at the starting point. And um, yeah, she stayed with me for maybe like 18 miles. And we were just, you know, running side by side. I couldn't really communicate with her because, of course, there's a language barrier. But I had like a million questions just flooding in my head. Like, (laughs) who was this girl? And also the craziest thing is that we were an hour and a half drive away from the town where she lived. So it just it was crazy. And so then maybe at the like 18 mile point, we were running along a road and a bus was driving down. She flagged the bus. The bus stopped and she just jumped right on. It was sort of like what? Like, how did that just happen? And she just jumped on. And then, um, I was curious to find like some answers, like what was the background of her story? And so then the very next day I was, I managed to contact her teacher. Um, we met back up in the same classroom that was in the cave and we sort of just sat there and the teacher just translated everything that, you know, sort of her story. And it was just, again, just a really grounding moment I think during this whole journey and it's sort of you know these are the really inspiring people that I feel like I'll always remember and um you know we I actually like an hour before meeting the the little girl again we me and a few friends went into this tiny town that we were staying in and bought her some sneakers as well because I mean clearly she has just incredible running talent and um so we gave them to her when we saw her eventually the next day and she was really happy and um yeah it was just like a truly incredibly grounding and um inspiring story that I think if I had to really pinpoint like top three stories from this whole journey it's um I think that has really just shaped me and um I'll always remember her and just her kind of fierce and strong presence. Yeah, I actually heard that story and then was uh, scrolling through Run to Reach and I saw yes. one of the virtual gifts was uh, shoes for an Afghani girl and I knew yes. I had wanted to give to Run to Reach, so that's the one that oh. I picked. I, which, oh which gosh. also, you know, like uh, like we were talking about earlier, effective altruism. Like if you have yeah. that personal connection, like you know, hearing you talk about it and like, oh, this is like actually directly meaningful for someone. Like, yes. it's very cool. Very cool to, to see. Thank um, you for your donation too, Jake. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, like I was saying before too, um, yeah, like I, I it just within my own life, I think like I'm, I'm, I'm like not rich by any means, but uh, like I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with where I'm at right now. And um, I, I feel kind of bad that I haven't like made uh giving more more of a part of my life um but you know there's plenty of life still to live and uh of course something i can do about that um and then i wanted to ask i this is again from a podcast but i heard you uh and and it relates uh because i know a lot of the ngos that you chose um specifically have to do with women's empowerment um But you said you believe that investing in women is one of the keys to alleviating poverty in the long term. And yes. I, I thought that was really interesting uh, because at least here in the United States, um, if we if we like consider the big issues, most people would put like women's rights and then poverty in, in two distinct camps, right? But um, it, it seemed like you were suggesting that these are uh, interconnected in some way. And I was hoping you could say more about that. Yes, of course. I mean, I think it's so I've been really lucky to work with a number of, you know, all of my organizations fall under the umbrella of, you know, being women focused and, and women empowerment or pushing for women empowerment. And, um, you know, even when you think of just the simple, in so many of these countries, women aren't even allowed to sort of create the families that they they want for themselves you know they they don't have access to to family planning services you know all these things that probably a lot of people in the west take for granted and this massively impacts their life and you know i think even you know one particular another organization that i loved working with is called empower her and it's basically providing entrepreneurship training programs for women in in the ivory coast and and again it's it's the fact that in so many of these these countries in the global south i guess you can say is that you know women are second class citizens they're expected to stay home they're expected to just take care of the family and you know it's it's sort of 
a lot of these organizations are really investing in the community by not only investing in these women, but also trying to change, not change, but sort of understand why they are being sort of held back by their community and how we can sort of bring them forward. And at the end of the day, it's just a better outcome for everyone involved in terms of, you know, economics and, and just overall well-being for these women of living their fullest life. I think it's just sort of a chain reaction of everything, you know, in terms of, you know, providing them family services or family planning services, you know, offering them the opportunity to to start working and, um, you know, obviously giving them access to education. It's all of these things that, you know, will propel these communities forward. Mm. Uh, uh, you said it all. I, I just got to let that like sink in for a second. That's, uh, I think, really cool and, and something that maybe I haven't uh, considered in that way before. Um, and then uh, I suppose like coming up to to the tail end of the interview, still got a, mm-hmm. a little bit, but um, I've heard you uh, talk about social media and say normally you're a pretty private person but yes. have like developed this platform of your own in order to yes. to shed light on other organizations. Yes. And um, I, I also like have some pretty severe reservations as it pertains to social media. Um, yes. But I, I, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about like your own, um, I guess, coming to terms with it in order to like pursue an end goal um, and just like what, what the process of of using social media has been like for you, like within the context of a, a project? Yeah, it's been a very interesting journey because really when I started Run to Reach at the end of or beginning of last year, I had like zero followers, of course, and was really starting from from nothing. You know, there are days where like sometimes I honestly spend a few hours on social media just doing stories and I'm sort of like what am I doing you know this is a huge waste of time but I never also feel like I know a lot of people use and nothing against them of course but use social media as a sort of tool to validate them and you know to and I've never felt that really with social media I never really need external validation but for me, I think whenever I start to feel a little bit badly about, you know, spending so much time on there, I just come back to, again, the main purpose of this project is to shed light on the work of all these organizations. And that's also been a really tricky thing to do on social media, because at the end of the day, you know, not everyone wants to go on Instagram and learn about an NGO. Like, that's not always super sexy. And I feel like uh, especially on Instagram, it's it's sort of a it's a way for people to escape, and there's a lot of voyeurism involved. And so, I think you know that's when I've sort of been playing the whole travel aspect a lot, and I think that's what people really enjoy seeing. But mm. if I can even just get one person involved with any of these organizations or donating, like to me, that makes all of these endless hours I spend on Instagram and sort of making all these posts, it makes it all worth it. And, um, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to do with the Run to Reach account after I finish this project, just because, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely go through periods where I'm like, you know, I feel really vulnerable right now. Like I, not that all, like, not that I'm a public figure at all, but sometimes it feels like, you know, anything I do, like any word I put out there, I, it makes me feel strange that it's sort of read and can sometimes be scrutinized. And, um, I also feel a lot of pressure, especially when I'm traveling to all these countries, you know, am I getting enough content to post and how am I going to tell the story of all these organizations and these places and how can I make it a digestible, um, sort of packaged, uh, content that will get people excited and engaged and um you know it's just there's a lot involved but at the end of the day it's been instrumental I think in my my campaign and you know it's it definitely has opened a lot of doors to me as well so I for me so I can't you know deny that as well but it's a love-hate relationship for sure (laughs) yeah I can I can relate and I I think uh um mainly you just want to be using it mindfully like yes anything in your life should be serving some purpose like even if you even if it is like 
being lazy and just laying on the couch and like scrolling through a feed like if if that's the if that's the goal like if you need to decompress like that's cool but um just don't get don't get swept up in it which is true for anything like um more and more like as I've gotten older I think that mindfulness is like the key to anything that I want to do yes Um, yes and then a a question about books real quick um you uh you referenced um uh, in another interview, it's a, a book that you read before signing up for for your first marathon in Tokyo. Um, what yes. I think about when I talk about running by Haruki Murakami. Uh, Haruki yes. Murakami. Um, yes. Yes. Any other like, and they don't have to be about running, but any other okay. like really instrumental books um, that you have uh, revisited over the years, like, um, yes. or that's just stuck in your mind for a long period of time. Um, so another one book that I another book that I love about running it's called Eat and Run and I also read this around the time I ran my first marathon and it just it's by this very famous ultra marathoner called um, Scott Jurek and I think what I love about that book is that it just you know even if you don't even like running it's just fascinating to read about people who take on these incredible incredible races like I'm talking 100 mile races in the desert and and so I think it's just a really I loved Rena. I devoured that book when I first mm-hmm. read it and it really inspired me to, to yeah get into longer distance running um another one of my favorite books of all time and I actually just reread it a few weeks ago during this whole confinement period it's called Shantaram I don't know if maybe you've heard it heard about it um I don't think so so Shantaram, I'm looking up the, so the, the author is Gregory David Roberts, and it's actually a true, true story. I mean, it's kind of an autobiography and essentially this Australian man who escapes from, from prison and he somehow manages to get on a flight to India and he just starts his life over in India, but not like actually in a slum and um, sort of becomes this really important figure there. And, you know, he falls in love and it's just this really beautiful um, story that just lets your mind wander. And it's just, I mean, I personally, I love, I traveled in India for um, a few weeks or a couple of years ago and I just really fell in love with the country and the culture and um, yeah. And I just, it just wraps you into this, pretty incredible story and uh his white his writing is beautiful as well so Shantaram is one of my favorite books and um I just finished reading Sapiens which I think yeah yeah is like it's very pertinent to what's going on now and I'm just starting to read now his um latest book it's called Homo Deus and um that's talking more about sort of um you know, cybersecurity and this whole issue with collecting data. And so again, it's like, it's very, very relevant, I think, to what we're all going through now with this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, ha- I'll have to pick up, uh, who is that? Noah Yuval Harai or Harari? Yes, um, yes, yes. But yes. I've, yeah, I've, I have, uh, sapiens on audible and i've yes. i've listened to that like three or four times now and i've loved it but yeah. i yeah i haven't i haven't gotten the the new book yet so yes. that's probably the motivation to do so yes yes it's really good you'll love it and then uh journaling i've heard you i've heard yes. you bring it up a few times um yes what what do you journal about i guess like pretty simple question but um or like what what kind of practice do you have around it yeah you know it took me a while to get into journaling just because I feel like with a lot of these experiences and maybe again, you can relate to this is like you have just a jam packed day and you're so stimulated by so many different things going on. I found it actually really hard to come home and to write about all of it. It was almost like I didn't want to face having to process everything that I just experienced in that day. Mm. What I started to do and it's no longer a secret really I figured out that um, if I actually wrote to someone about my experiences, it was a lot easier for me to write. So I started, um, so the first marathon run to reach was in Oman and I started writing all of these different letters actually to my husband. Um, I haven't actually given, given them to him yet, but it, um, it, 
when I look back at the letters, I've read a few of them now, even just in the past couple of weeks. And it's just, it's, it is my journal. It's sort of like every day, this is what I did. This is, these are the people I met. This is how I'm feeling. And, um, I, again, I've never really been someone who journals on a daily basis, but this practice made it a lot easier for me. And, um, I think it made it easier to sort of articulate certain emotions and feelings that I think left, you know, if I was really left alone with my thoughts, I don't know if I'd be able to to process them in as much of an articulate way. So, um, so yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. And then, uh, I'll, so I'll like uh, link to your your website and, and your platforms and everything in the show notes and also include those in the introduction. Um, I was definitely planning on asking what you had planned after Run to Reach, but yes. like heard every other interviewer ask that and you like weren't really sure. So I might not put yeah. you on the spot, but uh, yeah. I just want to say that, uh, yeah, um, whatever it is, like I, I think yeah. that you're doing really awesome work and uh, and and then I'm sure that that will continue with, with whatever it is that you choose next. Oh, thank you so much, Chance. And you too, like we're still always going to be on this journey, even if travel is going to stop for a bit, you know, the insatiable hunger to keep traveling will always be there. So um, yeah. I have faith our journeys will continue, both of us. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs>